This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, and today my guest is Rabbi Rami Shapiro. A congregational rabbi for 20 years, Rabbi Rami currently co-directs One River Wisdom School and the Holy Rascals Foundation. Rabbi Rami blogs at rabbirami.blogspot.com. He writes a regular column for Spirituality and Health magazine called Roadside Assistance for the Spiritual Traveler, and he hosts the weekly internet radio show, How to Be a Holy Rascal, on Unity Online Radio. With Sounds True, Rabbi Rami will be hosting the Forgiveness Challenge, a live online course on radical acceptance. The Forgiveness Challenge is an intensive, online, three-week engagement, and you also receive the ebook of Rabbi Rami's Guide to Forgiveness when you take part in the Forgiveness Challenge. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Rabbi Rami and I spoke about how we can free ourselves from a painful drama in our lives by shifting to what he calls spacious mind. We also talked about three helpful questions you can ask yourself in any situation in which we feel challenged to forgive. We talked about the difficult question of choice versus responsibility. And we also talked about the all-important process of asking others to forgive us. And finally, we talked about meaning-making and how looking deeply into areas of our life which require forgiveness can be an important part of the process of making meaning in our lives. Here's my very provocative conversation with a rabbi who often turns things upside down, a holy rascal himself, Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Rabbi Rami, you talk about forgiveness as an attitude, not a singular act or, or necessarily even a skill. I'm, I'm very good at forgiving. So I'd love to know more what you mean about this attitude of forgiveness. What is it? What kind of attitude? Well, I think the idea behind my understanding of forgiveness is that it's rooted in a, in a philosophy that what happens happens because, of, because the conditions are right to make it happen. And when I'm feeling hurt by someone else, I'm, it's sort of collateral damage that I, that I experience from the universe, in a sense. No one's really out to get me. Or if there are people who are out to get me, that's a very minor part of my experience, and I don't know if I could forgive them. You know, if there's really a sociopath or a psychopath out there, could I really forgive that person? And yet, even then, you'd say, well they really don't have a lot of choice because they're sociopaths or psychopaths. So I, I, I look at forgiveness in the context 
that reality happens because it has to happen that way in that moment. And the attitude I need to take toward that is one of, well, we might call it radical hospitality, where I'm simply open to whatever it is. And if it's good, fine. If it's not good, fine. But forgiveness as in an act of, of somehow setting things right, that I don't, I don't know how to do that. But forgiveness as an attitude that life just happens and I need to accept it and move on wisely, that I can achieve. Okay. So, you know, life just happens. So this person just happened to steal from me. This person just, you know, happened to come into my house and hurt someone I love. I mean, that's that might be, I think, well, quite I, not hard. Sure. I, don't, I, I don't mean, yeah, yeah, because the way you're, you're saying it, the way you're saying it, I'm hearing randomness. I don't think it's random. I think that people do whatever it is they do because the conditions for doing it are such that they can't do anything else. So, yeah, the person who breaks into your house is doing that because breaking into your house, you know, breaking in is something that has to happen and your house is where it has to happen. Given the conditions of that moment, he's walking on your street and, you know, your lights are off and everyone else's are on. I mean, I don't know, I'm making that up. Uh, it's not that people aren't responsible for what they do. It's just that what happens to them and to us is part of a system that really is beyond our control. So the issue of responsibility is a little tricky, I suppose. But um, knowing that means that I don't, I don't need to make things other than they are. If I'm angry with that, I'm angry with that. I can, forgiveness doesn't mean I have to get over the anger. If I'm resentful um, for the pain that was caused or, or the damage that was done, I don't have to get over that for forgiveness to happen. Forgiveness is simply the realization that stuff happens and that I need to move on without clinging to what was or trying to control what, what comes next. Okay, well, you know, it sounds good as you're talking not to cling to what happened, but just to see this person acted the way they acted. That was what was in their nature at the time. Those were the circumstances. But let's say somebody's listening and they say, you know, I'm just still quite pissed about that thing, X, Y, Z. I'm just still mad about it. I don't know. Do you want to call that clinging? I don't know. I'm still mad. It happened 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah, I'm I mean, still mad. Yeah. I mean, if, I don't know if clinging sounds maybe too judgmental. Let's call it something else. You're still mad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, so if the question is, how do I get over being mad? My answer would be, A, if, if there's a way to do that, I haven't got a clue. B, if you could have gotten over being mad, you would have gotten over being mad. For whatever reason, you're still angry because the conditions are such that you can't help but be angry. So you're going to have to forgive yourself for being angry, but not give up being angry. It's, it's just that changing the reality as it manifests in the moment is not something that I think we can do. Responding to it, we may have some maneuverability there. But changing it, you know, if I'm angry, I'm angry. I know if you, if you look at, um, I think it's the Oxford English Dictionary has the definition of forgiveness as a process whereby we stop feeling angry or resentful toward someone who's harmed us. I don't think anyone will be surprised by the definition, but how do you do that? 
I mean, I don't know how to do it. Um, I, I don't control those feelings that way. But if, if I wouldn't even know I've stopped being angry unless um, I were angry. And when I'm angry, then I'm not stopping. And when I'm stopping, then I'm not angry. So it's just whatever is manifesting at the moment, and I don't really have any control over that. The only input I have is behavioral. You know, what do I do with the feelings I've got? But can I change the feelings I have? I, I, I personally haven't got a clue how to do that. So if forgiveness has anything to do with, or, or has a, as a prerequisite, you know, changing my feelings, then I'm stuck. Okay, so so far, Rabbi Rama, I have to be honest, you're not helping our angry person very much, in my opinion. I'm not sure. Someone's listening and they're like, I wanted to hear this conversation about forgiveness because I want to stop being so angry because I know that this anger is not helping me. It's not helping the person. The person's not even alive anymore that I'm angry at. You know, it's not helping. There's no justice to be done. I'm stewing over here. And now Rabbi Rami is saying, there's nothing I can really do about my anger. So how are you going to help me, the angry person? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, you're going to get more angry as we talk about how I, I am, I am getting a little anger. more. I am getting a little more angry as this conversation's <laughs> going on, as a matter of fact. Right. So, so why don't you control that? Why don't you just not do that? The point being that you can't, right? You're just getting angry because the conditions are right for getting more angry. My, my approach to forgiveness is, that it's not about changing the feeling of anger or resentment or any of these things, but by shifting to a different state of mind, but not worrying about feelings here. So for me, forgiveness is shifting from what I call narrow mind. I mean, it's not like I didn't make these terms up, but narrow mind to spacious mind from the egoic self to the larger capital S self that, that I think each one of us really is, so that the anger is maybe still there. I, I'm, I'm not going to prejudge that. But my sense of self is so much larger that it is a small tickle somewhere you know, in, in the fringes of my being, as opposed to the defining, uh, a, a defining aspect of myself. So rather than try to change the way I feel, let me change the way, my, my realization of who I really am. So, so let, me, let me give you a concrete example of what I have in mind. I, this, this is sort of a basic one, but when I was a kid, I was bullied a lot. And I had this friend, and we have to put the word friend in quotes, who would beat me up periodically. I don't know why I'm calling him a friend. There were times when we were friendly and times when he just lost it and he would just start pounding on me. Even then, we're talking seventh grade, I guess. Even then I realized he wasn't in control of any of that. Something was happening to him. He was nice one moment and the next moment he would just start to wail at me with his you know, fists. And at one point, because he was very small and I was much larger than at one point, he's got me against a wall, and he's just pounding into my stomach with his, his fist. But I was so much larger than him that I really wasn't feeling it. I wasn't in any pain. It was just an absurdity. And I looked down at him, and I just got his attention, and he looked up at me, and I said, what are you doing? <laughs> and I, I think at that moment, he realized how absurd the situation was, that he was just, you know, pounding away at this 
this very large, overweight kid and not causing any damage. And he just stopped and walked away. He had no idea why he was doing what he was doing. If I were identified with, if I were smaller, I mean, physically, because using this as a metaphor here, although it's a factual thing, if I were a smaller person, those punches really would have hurt, but I was so much bigger, they, they didn't. So now I'm talking spiritually, psycho-spiritually. If we identify with the small S self, all kinds of things cause us harm or, or uh, cause us hurt that if I identify with the big S self, don't. So the small S self tends to see itself as the central character in its own private drama. And everything that happens is, why is this happening to me? The big S self has a much larger drama of which I am a part, but I'm not the central character. So I might ask, why is this happening? But it's no longer, why is it happening to me? It's just, this is happening. And I can look at it without owning it or without identifying with it to such an extent that it begins to define me. So, yeah, I'm angry. I mean, I, I, can, I can think of, of hurts that I've experienced that I still remember, and I bet there's some negative energy around them if I, if I looked deep enough. But they're so tangential to who I am at the moment that they no longer define me, though I'm sure they, they once did. So what I think, where, where I think we can be of help to, to people in, in, in the area of forgiveness most profoundly is not to help them get over anger, but to help them get over themselves, to help them shift from the small S self to the large S self through meditation, through chanting, through a lot of different spiritual contemplative practices. And that is where forgiveness happens. We simply outgrow the notion that I'm the target. Well, let's talk more about this spacious self, as you call it. Now, when might somebody potentially shift to the spacious self? They go, oh, okay, great. Now I know what I can do. I, I don't have to feel so angry. I can make this shift, go into the spacious self. But they're actually you know, quote-unquote, bypassing their actual experience because they're, they're listening to something like this and they're going, okay, here we go, let's make the shift. Oh, no one has any control over anything and everything's okay. We're in this big, vast ocean of space. Sounds Does, good to me, actually. You don't, think, you, don't think it, you don't think it has its own potential problems making that move? Well, it, it depends. If, it's, if, we're bypass, if we're bypassing... If I'm in a dangerous situation where I am being abused, right, and I simply say, oh, this is part of some divine plan, or this is simply nature working itself out, and I'm not the target, and I'm just going to take it and stand here and be abused, yeah, then, then I think we're making a mistake. What, what I think happens when I'm talking about shifting from narrow mind to spacious mind, I the example of, of saying, oh, I'm just going to take it, that's still spacious mind. That's still focused on me as, as somehow at the heart of this drama. What I'm talking about is getting a larger picture and seeing, you know what, I don't have to understand why the person is doing what they're doing. I have to, I do understand, I just think this is true, that whatever they're doing, it's probably the only thing they can do at the moment. So I'm not going to try to change them. I'm not going to try to fix them. I'm not going to try to change myself or fix myself. I'm simply going to get the hell out of there. And 
leave the situation without having to fix my feelings to allow me to leave, without having to come to some kind of, um, you know, realization, emotional realization that I'm worthy of not being someone else's victim. When you've shifted the spacious mind, you're not inactive. You're free to act without having to wait for your feelings to give you permission to act. I don't, I don't know if that, if that is as clear to, to you know, if, if it's coming across as clear as I'm intending it. But that's what happens, I think, is that there's a freedom in spacious mind that says, hey, no one deserves to be beaten up. I'm leaving. Uh, and then later, if I need to, you know, fix the feelings, I can work with a therapist on that. But uh, it's, 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 it's a way of freeing ourselves from the drama that the small S self is so fixated on. And by doing that, I think we avoid the problem that you're raising. I'm wondering if you could give another example, perhaps from someone you've worked with, and how this shift in attitude might have occurred in their life around something that was hard for them to forgive. Okay, so so I mean, I, I was actually I had somebody in mind when I was just talking about that, but I, I've got several I could I could draw from. So I'm trying. To, I just want to make sure I don't say this in a way that leads anyone to know who I'm talking about. So so let's just you know we'll say it's fiction, but it's not. Um, I know I know a woman whose uh, son is uh, an addict, drug addict. He is violent when he's on drugs. When he's not, he's fine. Uh, when he's on drugs, he's violent. He commits uh, not just breaking and entering, theft to get money to, to buy drugs, but, but he commits assault on, uh, on her. His anger is uncontrollable, so, so she is clearly victimized by him. Her way of dealing with it is to try to figure out you know, why he is the way he is, what she did raising him, let him to be the way he is, uh, how she can fix the way he is. And she pours a lot of time, energy, love, and money into what uh, you know, ends up enabling him to be the person that he is, this violent, dangerous person that he is. Oh, okay, hold on, hold on when, a second. Hold on a second. How yeah. is she enabling him if she's trying to help him? I didn't get that jump there. Because she's not, what, what she's doing is she's funding his, um, his habits. She's allowing him to live in the house. Okay. She's providing him with room and board uh, without having him change any, just hoping that he's going to change somehow. Okay. Uh, she bails him out when he's in jail. Um, she pays for rehab even though he's not actually doing anything to, to rehab himself. That, that's what I have in mind. Okay. That, Yep, that's good. Yep, yep. Yeah, so she's doing all of that. And she's seeing it as this this drama where she should be in control or she and he should be in control and she should be able to influence him in such a way that he can control his behavior and get off drugs and stop being this violent person that he becomes on drugs. When, when When she came to me, she was at her wit's end. I mean, she's did all these things that, that she thought she should do. But my approach was you can't change him, that he can't change himself, not in the state that he's in, that if you, if you focus on why this is happening and what did I do, 
It just keeps you trapped in the drama. So through uh, meditation practice, you know, mindfulness practice, different kinds of things that you can do, you begin to observe what's going on from a place of well, what I'm calling spaciousness, but there's a quality to it of compassion. You suddenly, I think when you look at the reality that's unfolding within and around you from this place of spaciousness, the, the observing mind, you know, witness consciousness, it's not simply a cold-hearted, um, you know, watching a show on TV on a screen. There, there's a real sense of compassion. You may not understand the ins and outs of everything that's happening, but you realize that everybody is trapped. And that only leads to a sense of compassion. And for me, that ultimately leads to forgiveness. So, so you realize he's stuck, she's stuck. And you, but you, you also realize that the person who's realizing the stuckness, that big S self, isn't stuck. And if you can act from that place of liberation, then you can continue to watch the story unfold, but you don't have to step into it. You don't have to, you know, enable things. You don't have to pay for, um, for this and that. You can allow, she can allow her son to experience whatever he's going to experience and not drag her into it. This, I think, is to her benefit, but I also think it's to his, that now he's got a, he has, he hasn't got his mother to rely on. He hasn't got his mother to blame. He's, going to have to, you know, he'll find probably, unless he can uh, do some, some other kind of thing, but chances are he'll just find other people to blame. But at least my concern wasn't with him. My concern was with her. So she can be free from that. Doesn't mean she's free from suffering. Doesn't mean she's free from pain. Doesn't mean she's not going to cry. It just means that she isn't going to try to fix the things that she cannot fix. She's just going to take behavioral steps, actions that she can take to you know, free yourself from the situation. So where does forgiveness come into that? Once I, this again, this is my, my understanding. Once she makes that shift to spacious mind, forgiveness is axiomatic. She realizes that, you know, nobody set out to become a drug addict. Whatever she may have done, and maybe nothing, but whatever, just even if she could think of something, but whatever she may have done to help facilitate this, horrible outcome. She didn't do it intentionally, you know, with that in mind. Whatever this, this boy set out to be, it wasn't this. So compassion arises, and with that compassion comes a sense of forgiveness. Because how, my, my experience is, once I get that um, inevitability of all these different things happening, forgiveness is all I have left. It's like, okay, I can't be... The anger passes. I'm not making it pass. I don't know how to do that. But the anger passes, the resentment passes. There's a sadness there that, you know, from compassion, maybe shared suffering, there's a sadness that you have, but that just opens your heart even wider. Um, but in that liberating way, not in a way that's going to you know, drag you back into the drama. And now, Rabbi Rami, you've written a small book that's called Rabbi Rami's Guide to Forgiveness. And it's quite a provocative book, in my opinion, in which you talk about this attitude of forgiveness. And at the end of the book, you summarize the book, in, in a sense, by saying that there are three questions that you can ask yourself to help develop this 
attitude, this perspective of forgiveness. And I thought it might be helpful to go over these three questions. I thought they were really shed a lot of light on your view. So here's the first one. The first question that you direct people to ask themselves is, who is aware of this situation? So can you talk a little bit about that, how asking that question helps us? Yeah, so we're, we're really talking about you know, the, the Advaita non-dual teachings of Ramana Maharshi. And the, the question is, and this is how one of the ways, for me anyway, that I can slip from narrow mind to spacious mind. So when I ask that question of myself, who, you know, who is thinking this, who is feeling this, who's you know, experiencing resentment or anger, whatever it is, I realize that the awareness of my anger, resentment, lack of forgiveness, that level of knowing isn't experiencing the resentment or the anger. That, that level of knowing is free from the whole drama. I can watch it. I'm aware of it. That's the, the big S self that, or that, that, I'm, that I'm calling spacious mind. Um, so every day, and I ask this question of myself all the time, uh, you know, who is it that's experiencing these things? And it brings me to that sense of spaciousness from which compassion just arises. Okay. And then the, the second question, how am I complicit in this situation? And I just want to ask that question and ask you to clarify something. So let's say somebody just did something terrible, like lied to me. How am I complicit? in this situation? What did I do? They lied to me. I didn't do anything. I asked a question. They lied to me. Because in this question, how am I complicit in this situation? There's an implication that I am complicit, but I'm not sure I get that. Yeah, what I have, maybe maybe the word complicit is, is too strong, but what I have in mind is that how, how am I using the situation to create a drama for myself that is somehow self-serving. So, so that probably doesn't explain it too well either. So, so if, if I'm, if you've done something to me that is causing me terrible pain, you've lied to me, you've betrayed me in some way, uh, what I tend to do is turn up, make this a whole drama, all about, it's all about me. I mean, I am the target, I am the victim. How could you do this to me? Um, I, I no longer care about the spacious mind kind of um, uh, inquiry, you know, what, what conditions were right that you really, at that moment, had no choice but to lie to me. I, I don't care. I, I'm, I'm the, the, the protagonist, and I've been wronged, and I have every right for, to redress, and you owe me, and all that. That's what I mean by complicit, that I'm now feeding or I'm allowing this to feed my sense of self and self-righteousness. So that, that's what I have in mind. Uh, when I look at the dramas of my life, I get a sense that I'm trapping myself in them. Uh, you, you, you may have lied to me. Okay. I mean, I have to deal with that. But do I have to make it the center of my, my existence? Do I have to keep running it over my mind over and over and over again. Now, on the one hand, I, could, I would say the answer to that is yes. If I could stop running it over and over in my mind, I would, but I can't. So, again, I'm powerless over that 
but I'm not powerless over asking the first question, who's running it over over in, in, in his mind? And the answer is, uh, it's that small F self. It's the small Rami. It's the egoic self. Uh, I'm complicit in the drama, not in your act of betrayal. I'm complicit in the drama that follows by, by taking it on as my drama. And there's going to be all kinds of psychosocial reasons why I do that. And again, far too many. It could take me years in therapy to try to get over that, if, if then. But if I simply shift back to, so who's, who's aware of this? The, the me that's aware isn't doing it, and it allows me to step out of it. That's why I have a mind by, by complicit. Okay. And then the third question that you have people ask themselves who is in control of this situation? Yeah, that's back to where we started. You know, I, I just tend to think that we claim a lot more control than we have. We claim a lot more volition than we actually have the right to claim. There was this interesting experiment. Uh, there was a show on TV, a comedy show. Now I can't remember who, who the host was. But it was called, Whose Line Is It Anyway? And one of the routines they did there is also something that, that I've seen done in psychology experiments, where you'd have the two uh, improv people, one stand in, uh, in front of the other. The person in front puts her arms behind her back, and the person behind her puts his arms through her armhole, in a sense, so that you know her, his arms are now her arms. And then he's asked to do all kinds of things, and it's just very funny. Lift cups, tries to help her drink, but because it's not her arms, it spills all over and everyone laughs. In the psychology experiment, everyone is wearing the same white lab coat. And there are these objects on a table in front of uh, person A whose hands are behind her back. And person B is instructed to do a number of things with these objects. And then person A is queried as to why she's doing those things. And, you know, watching it, you'd say, well, the answer is I'm not doing them. It's the guy behind me who you're telling to do them is doing them. But that's not what happens in the experiment. In the experiment, people quickly fall into uh, the drama of what's happening, and they begin to lay claim for behaviors that they have no control over, but they're simply owning them and then trying to explain why they're doing what they're doing when, in fact, they're not doing anything. So I'm taking that as, as uh, my starting point here and saying that we are really not in control of what's going on. And to try to control the arms of the other person, to use my metaphor here, to try to control that is just a waste of energy. Nobody is in control, or the universe is in control, if you want, or I don't know. But you're not in control. And that, to me, is amazingly liberating. If I'm not in control, then I don't have to fix it. When I then go back, and, and again, you have to circle back to the first question. So who notices, who's aware that there's no control? That me, that big S me, the, the spacious mind, that level of consciousness can see that, there's, that, that I'm, the little me is not in control and then can break the whole game, the whole cycle and simply walk away from the experiment, simply realize, wait a minute, those aren't my arms in the first place. So, so the answer to who's in control is nobody. 
Things are just happening. Okay, Rabbi yeah. Rami, but, you know, I mean, I, and I want to make sure I'm understanding you here. But, uh, you know, let's just take the example of someone whose partner had an affair and they felt deeply betrayed. And this is, you know, a big forgiveness challenge for people when it happens in their life. And then I'm sitting here, I'm asking this question, who's in control of this situation? And I think, well, my partner had a lot of choices that he or she could have made. There were a lot of choice points. They could have gone left. They could have gone right. But but is that true? Let's start with that. Well, yeah. Yeah. And they could have. They could have said no instead of yes. And they said, you know, you you say that. Yeah. (laughs) But if they could have said no, maybe they would have said no. My question is, could they have said no? They're, they're in a situation, whatever it is, um, with whatever's going on with you, whatever's going on with the other person, um, could they at that moment, not theoretically, right, but, and, and certainly not from the outsider perspective of, of you saying they could have made a different choice, could they have made a different choice? I, I just doubt that, that I think the choices we make uh, arise from the situation in which... I, I don't even know if the word choice is right. The things we do arise from the situation in which we find ourselves. And in the small S mind, the narrow mind, I'm not sure there's a lot of choice. If there's a choice, the choice is to continually ask the first question. You know, who is it that's feeling this attraction? Who is it that's um, feeling the sexual desire, if that's the kind of betrayal we're talking about? then that question might shift you back to spacious mind. And then you realize, oh, okay, that's what's going to happen. But I'm not in that situation now. As in spacious mind, I can, I can walk away. I can do something different. So maybe the only choice is the choice to shift consciousness. But in the, locked, in, in the narrow consciousness that the person is in, could they really do other than they did? I mean, I, I'm just asking. Well, it sounds like in your approach to forgiveness, what you're doing, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is normally the way people teach about forgiveness, at least the way it's often taught, is, you know, you're a person, there are these other people, and you, oh, separate person, are going to grant the letting go of this event that happened. You're going to say, okay, I can see it from your perspective for a moment, I think, and I and I let it go. But that you're actually sort of jumping the system, if you will, and, and taking us out of even that viewpoint to begin with. Is that correct? Yeah, but let's go back one, one step, because you said you can... Uh, no, I should have interrupted you earlier. You, you said uh, that I can see from your... You know, we're talking about person A is trying yeah. to give person B. Person yeah. A can say, I understand the situation. I, I see things from person B's perspective. I know why you did what you did and I can forgive you. So that's very different than, than what we were talking about just a moment ago where we said that, you know, person D had all these choices. Now you're saying, no, I get it. This is why you did what you did. And you've, you've taken the whole choice thing out, it sounds like to me. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. 
Just go to SoundsTrue.com backslash free gifts. That's SoundsTrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Well, what I'm getting at is when I hear a question like, who is in control of this situation? I think what I find troublesome, or at least that's not easy for me to understand, your very challenging uh, view here, for me at least, who is in control of this situation, is that I think, well, God, then that takes away all of this person's responsibility for what they did. No one's in control. They're not in control of the fact that they... I looked them straight in the eyes and said, tell me the truth, and they lied. They're not in control. They have no responsibility right. for that. So, that, so it's this confusion right. of the word I mean, control and responsibility that I'm trying to get at. Yeah, no, that's an interesting distinction that we have to make. And we came up with that. We mentioned it early on, but we didn't go into it. So, yeah, what happens to responsibility? You know, you're, you're looking, you know, you and I are looking each other in the eye, and you say, tell me the truth. And... Honestly, there are probably moments, I mean, not with the two of us because we don't know each other that well, but there are probably moments when I can't. I cannot tell you the truth. I'm afraid you're going to leave me. I'm afraid if I tell the truth, my whole world falls apart. I've got such uh, emotion, or negative you know, fear, emotion around telling the truth that there is no way in hell I could tell you the truth. So I don't. Now, if you can understand what I'm going through at that moment, then, yeah, forgiveness would be pretty easy. They say, oh, yeah, I get it. You, you just, it was a kind of suicide to tell the truth, and you just couldn't do that. So I get it. And I couldn't probably, I couldn't do it either in that situation. You know, maybe you'd say that. Uh, and, then, and then forgiveness would happen. But it doesn't happen because you forgave the person. It happens because you understood the larger trap that person was trapped in. Now we're talking about responsibility. So I, this gets tricky for, for me, too. If you're trapped, where is your responsibility? You know, if I say you have that responsibility, well, then move it back to the criminal idea. Well, then I couldn't help it. I was, the situation was such that I had to pull the trigger and the other person died. And, you know, so I'm not responsible. Now, in, in our legal system, we do, we do have some leeway here. You know, there's premeditated murder, there's manslaughter. I was trying to, you know, prove my archery skills and shoot the apple off your head, and the fact that it went through your throat, well, you know, it's just, I wasn't as good as I thought I was, but I wasn't trying to kill you. So that's involuntary manslaughter, whatever the legal system would name. But still, you killed somebody. Still, you lied. So are you responsible for your behavior, even if you have no control over your behavior. So this, this is something I wrestle with all the time because I need you to be responsible. I need to be responsible for my behavior. Otherwise, the whole legal system falls apart and, and maybe the whole moral system falls apart. And yet, responsibility... Wait, what, what are you responsible for? I can't be responsible for all those elements that came together to create the complex system in which I find myself so that I have to lie to you to save my life. You know, I don't mean literally, but I mean the life that I'm imagining I want to preserve. I can't be responsible for all those things. I can only be responsible for what I do in the moment that you ask me to tell the truth. 
if we focus on the egoic self's ability to tell the truth at that moment, I, I think we could say, probably say, well, I would say, that there's no control over that. The fear is too great. The danger is too great. So you, you may say you're responsible for the choice you made, but there was really no choice. It was, it was compulsive. <clears throat> if, though, when you say to me, tell me the truth, if I could you know, close my eyes for a second <clears throat> and do some, some shifting from the egoic to the, from narrow mind to spacious mind, if I could see just for a minute who's really trapped, and it's not you, it's, it's me who you're asking to tell the truth, who's really trapped, if I could step out of that trap for a moment, then I have, again, I wouldn't say choice, but I have the capacity to tell the truth. And from that perspective, the truth becomes as um, the obvious thing to do, just like lying was the obvious thing to do from the small egoic self. That from spaciousness, it's not, again, again, I wouldn't say it's a choice. I don't think I can lie from that place. That telling the truth is the only thing to do there, just like in the situation from an egoic perspective. Lying to you is the only thing I can do in that situation. So I think it always comes back in my interactions with people and and, maybe other beings, that my interactions with people, if I can come to those from a spacious place, I come to them from a free place. If I come to them within the narrow mind, I come to them with all this drama, and and, and I'm, I don't. It, it never works out the way you know it, it could. It always works out the way it has to, given the drama that I'm playing out. Does that make any sense? I, I know this is upsetting. No, I, I actually, I think I. I mean, there are moments when the light shines in, and I understand what you're talking about. I think and really appreciate it. No, and I could be totally wrong. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Of course, you never know here on Insights at the Edge. Okay, but I want to ask you a question. How did you come to this view on forgiveness? Was it working with people, counseling them as a rabbi? Was it because you were wrestling with forgiveness issues in your own life? How did you come to this viewpoint? Well, probably it's a mixture of both, but I think it's more the latter. I mean, I'm looking at my own life, why it turned out the way it did. Um, I've spent, I'm a big proponent of therapy. I've spent a lot of time with therapists. I think that, you know, I'm obviously going to simplify things here, but one of the things I learned in therapy is to see, you know, one of the major therapeutic things one can do is to change the story and you can go back and, and sort of rewrite your history in a different way. And that frees you from some of the negativity and, um, some of the baggage that you may carry with that. But it's in my own wrestling to understand how how I ended up being who I ended up. And, and again, we're talking that egoic. I think that's where the impetus comes. And <clears throat> then you could say, well, but he's just excusing himself. And I have to, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to doubt everything I say. So yeah, it could be that this is simply a giant scam to... to um, ex- excuse myself for all the things I've done in my life. I mean, it's, it's definitely possible. But in working with therapists and then beyond that, working with, um, well, I have a specific teacher that, that I work with in, um, in a self-inquiry, the Ramana Maharshi kinds of things. When you 
begin to question, you know, who is, who is doing this? Who is thinking this? Who is feeling this? And realizing this spacious mind element and finding in that the capacity not just to be free from the past, but to be free in the moment, to not allow the, the character Rami, the, the product of all of these past dramas, to determine what happens next. You know, so, so just let me try to make this really concrete. So right now, you and I are on the radio. I am trying to impress you with my genius. I am trying to be coherent. Uh, I'm trying to defend a book I wrote that maybe doesn't should be tossed away rather than defended. I'm defending, uh, you know, the work I'm doing with you on the forgiveness challenge. I have all this drama going on. So if I stick with that and I just let myself get all wrapped up in that, trying to please Tammy and trying to impress Tammy and, and the listeners and maintain some kind of uh, credential that, that, hey, he knows what he's talking about and therefore other people will listen to him. If I work with all that drama, I feel physically, first, very tense, very tight in my, in my gut. Uh, my mind is racing ahead, going, okay, okay, what did you say? What, try to remember, what did you say 20 minutes ago? You have to be able to make that work. What did you say in the book on forgiveness? What did you say in the 21-day forgiveness challenge um, that we're doing together? You know, trying to make all these things work. And it becomes... Um, th- this overwhelming drama that I'm only going to get lost in and, and probably messed up in. If I can make the shift to spacious mind and say, you know, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. Um, let's just respond to the questions as you understand them at the moment and not try to remember what you wrote in a book uh, or, or, you know, in the, in the, anywhere in the past, just be present to what's being asked and try to articulate it clearly. I feel, uh, not just defense, if I say defenseless, that's the wrong word. There's no need for defense. There's nothing to defend. That's better. There's nothing to defend. There's nothing I have to prove. It's just, this is what I'm experiencing and this is what I'm seeing and this is what I'm sharing. And, you know, the listeners should, should look for themselves and see what's true for themselves. My experience has been that when I can enter into that spacious place, the drama around which I spent so much energy just falls away. It's just last season's TV show, and I don't have to, I don't have to watch it on, on an infinite uh, DVR loop. So to, does, that, does that help understand what's going on here? Yeah, it does. I mean, I appreciate this shift that you're describing to spacious or big mind. I appreciate that. I see its value. I'm still curious, though. Let's get specific in a certain kind of way. Here it is. It's the end of the year. And one of the things that often happens at the end of the year is people look back at what happened. And let's say that part of what we look back at here at the end of the year is something that feels really hard for us to accept. I mean, truth be told, we still feel like we're, you know, it's just that that was that thing that happened. I just, uh, you know, I, I, I hold a grudge against that person for this thing that happened this year. It was terrible what this person did to me this year. I'm listening to Rabbi Rami, but I feel that way. What very specifically could I do? 
I want to release this before the end of the year. I really do, this is the person saying. I really want to release this. Okay, so so my, my first question is, do you really want to release this? I mean, I know you just said that, but do you really want to release it? Because I, I get a sense that if you really wanted to release it, you would have released it. That you really don't want to release it, which is why you're holding on to it, but you can't say that because that's so not right. So you have to say, I really want to release it, I really want to release it, I really want to release it, and that just allows us to keep it. So I don't know if that's true, that you really want to release it. Um, if, you, if, if we're going to play with that, though, I mean, there's all kinds of things that we could invent, um, and, I, and I'm being sarcastic here. So there's all, we could create rituals, we could write them on papers, we could burn them in a fire, we could, we could do all kinds of year-end things to free us from, you know, our past, I'm sure we can, you know, we're creative, we're spiritual, we can come up with all kinds of stuff. But, if, and if the thing goes away, if the grudge goes away, then it would have gone away anyway, I think. And, and the magic doesn't necessarily make that happen. Um, and if it doesn't go away, well, it's because you really didn't want it to go away, and again, the magic fails us. So, what I would say is what I've been saying all along, is what you have to do is you have to look at the reality that we do what we do because in the moment that we do it, it's really all we can do and shift from the narrow mind that's trapped in that drama to, to spacious mind, which is never trapped. Um, but then I want to add something else because we've been talking the whole time about me forgiving you or you forgiving me or, or you know, one of us forgiving someone else, etc. How about the other way around? We haven't even mentioned it. That the stuff that I've done to hurt you. So I know, theoretically, I know, and I'm, this is what I'm saying, that, that um, to go back to the lying thing. So I lied to you. You, you, you. you looked me in the eye, and I looked you in the eye, and you said, tell me the truth, and I didn't. And I'm claiming that, given the, the context of that moment, there was no way I could possibly tell you the truth. Um, you know, coming from that egoic mind. So I, I know I did that. You know I did it. You're mad. I know I did it. I can't help you stop being mad at me. I, I don't, that's, I don't know what to do about that. I can't go back and change what I did, though I probably run it over in my mind a gazillion times coming up with a new scenario excusing why I did it. But that doesn't help any. So the other aspect of forgiveness is me going to you and saying, I'm sorry, saying that, that you know, in, in Judaism, we have this entire month, the last month of the liturgical year, just before the high holiday, where we're supposed to go to everybody we know and ask them for their forgiveness. Not forgive them, that always has that sort of ego thing to me, but to ask them to forgive me. And in that act of I think it's a very humbling thing to do, to go and say, you know, I know I've hurt you this year. I don't have to give you the specifics because then we're just going to go fall back on the drama. Yes, how could you do that? And then I have my excuses. So, so forget that. But I know I've hurt you this year. I know I've hurt you on purpose sometimes. I know I've hurt you, you know, inadvertently just because I wasn't paying attention other times. But I know I've hurt you this year. Can, can you forgive me that? You know, those hurt. Now, whether you do or don't is out of my control. 
what is in my control is asking. And then what happens from the asking on the egoic level is a deep humbling of you know, the, the small s self, where I realize that, you know, I've done terrible things, painful, hurtful things. Uh, forget about why I did them, whatever my story is, but I've done them. That causes me to, to become smaller. And the ego, the, the drama drops. I just feel the suffering I've caused. It, it's a, it's a, a humbling, brings me, you know, humble, like probably from humans, you bring you back to the earth. It, it brings me to a state of um, humility where I no longer try to be the master of my universe. And again, I can then, in that situation, once again, say, so who's feeling that humility? And shift once more into spacious mind. Not to avoid the humility, but just to say, ah, you know, I'm trapped. And I've got to continually shift back into spacious mind. But even my trapped self can ask for forgiveness. I may not be able to forgive, because that means changing my story. But I can certainly ask for forgiveness. And so there's that... And there's a tremendous relief in that as well. So, okay, so so you've hurt me. Switch the tables for a second. So you've hurt me terribly this year, and and I cannot bring myself to forgive you. But if I look carefully at the year, I probably hurt you as well. Even if I I'm so angry about what you did to me, I can't think of anything that I did to you that you didn't absolutely deserve. Let's not go there. Let's just say, eh, I, I've, I've been an ass also. So let me go and, and ask for forgiveness from you. My experience is that when I do that with people who I really want them to ask me, but they're not, if I ask them, the humbling, the self-humbling is not psychologically dam- damaging. It's spiritually liberating. It frees me from the whole drama that I am somehow in charge of all of this, my behavior, your behavior, what happens to me. And, and it allows me to slip into that spacious mind where compassion is the operating experience. And again, I don't know how, how much sense I'm making, but that's the best I can do to explain what I, what I experience on a regular basis. So this practice of taking a whole month to ask people to forgive you. You've done this before. I'm curious to know like, how many people did you ask, let's say, in any given month-long practice like this? And, and how did that go? How, what were the results for you? Yeah, so the numbers change. Theoretically, you know, this stuff comes from a time in, in Jewish life when we lived in small villages, and so you would ask the I don't know, they didn't have banks, but, you know, you would ask the clerk at the bank and you would ask the, the people at the grocery store and you would ask the people in the market. You know, all the, all the people you come in contact with every day uh, throughout the year, they were the same people at the small village, and so you would ask one another. In my actual life, um, I don't think the postman, the post, uh, postal delivery guy is, is the same person every time. So I don't know if I would say anything to her. She doesn't know me. I don't really know her. So So there's there's disconnect with lots of the people that I come into contact with. Uh, but I do see the same tellers at the bank. I do see my family. I do see some of the same people with whom I either work or have an ongoing relationship 
face to face over the phone. You know, and to each of those people, even at the bank, uh, at the bank, I have to explain what I'm doing uh, because they don't. They're not Jewish. And they don't <laughs> have, have this background. So, so you just can't walk up and you know I have a deposit. And by the way, you know I'm sorry if I hurt you this year. So you have to give them some back. <laughs> but um, my experience is, and okay, I, I don't want to sound cold here, but but I. So if I go to the bank and I say if I've hurt you, you know, this year, they always go, no, 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 it's fine. But we don't have that. It's not really an intimate relationship. It's, they're my banker. So they're, they're, too, they're too quick to, to do that. But what I have in mind, just to stick with the bank for a second, you know, I know I go up there and I'm supposed to have everything ready, and half the time I don't because I've forgotten my numbers and they have to look it up for me. So I cause them not emotional pain, but doing busy work that they would pr- probably rather not do. So I'm reminding myself, I'm humbling myself even around that, and I think that makes me a little bit more aware of bringing the, the paperwork that I should bring with me when I go to the bank. But when I deal with somebody with whom, you know, close friends, spouse, kids, that kind of thing, then it's hard to do this. Um, I can walk into the bank and just say it. Standing there with my son, daughter-in-law, wife, you know, close friends, and, and saying, because you say, you know, if I have hurt you in any way, I know I've hurt you. It is incredibly humbling. Now, they may not notice it, feel it, or have a clue. But for me personally, it is a wrenching experience and one I look forward to. I like the month of Elul. This is the name of the month. I like this month because it it allows me to, to do this practice, which continually frees me from the drama, but only through the wrenching you know, uh, remembrance of all the things I've done. So, so, so for me personally, you know, from the inside, it's liberating it's, you know, through the fires of, of remorse. But what I get from the other side is sometimes too, the forgiveness is too quick. Mm-hmm. That even, even with family, that I wish sometimes there was a little more, I don't know what you'd say, a little, a, the experience could be a little deeper than sometimes it is. That we, I, I forgive you. And that's just a way of, let's not talk about it. Let's just avoid the whole thing. Let's just pretend it never happened. I don't want that. I don't want to sit and dwell on it because I don't, you know, what happened happened and it happened because I think it had to happen. But I don't want to just forget that it happened. I want to use that it happened as a way of continually improving my, my way of being in the world by continually mm, shrinking that, that uh, egoic self so it no longer sees itself as, in my case, you know, king of the universe. But it is a powerful, powerful thing to do. Almost, you could say it's a powerful thing to do no matter how it's, it plays itself out. But I think it's most powerful when... Uh, People really have to, when, when maybe tears are involved, and you know that something is happening on a deeper level than just, ah, I forgive you, I forgive you, let's move on. I have two final questions for you, Rabbi Rami. Here's the first one. In your book, Rabbi Rami's Guide to Forgiveness, you talk about forgiveness and the making of meaning. You know, we've been talking in this attitude of forgiveness 
that we're not in control of the situation. We're moving to this big, open view. And yet you talk about how there's something called meaning and that as humans, we're meaning makers. So I wonder if you can talk about that in the context of this attitude of forgiveness. Yeah, let, let me... I don't know if you want to quote something specific here, but we aren't in control of what's happening, but we are what we do make meaning out of it. So I can make two kinds of meaning. Let me, let me give you a concrete example. So there was a moment in my life when I had to, let me be more specific, um, part of, of becoming uh, a rabbi in the reform movement, at least when I was there in the late, uh, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, you had to give this public talk, and the talk was taped and then um, broadcast to the entire student faculty uh, bodies at, uh, on, a, on the next Monday. You give the talk on Saturday, and you, it's reviewed on Monday. And it's, it's a kind of thesis defense, though that's a separate thing. And you have to, people are, are invited to just tear into whatever it is you say, and you have to defend your talk. And it's a big, big deal. So you sweat over it for a year, and you finally do it. It's one of the last things you do at the, five, the end of five years of training. And I went through this, and the Monday comes, and everybody's gathered together. Some faculty like you, some faculty don't. But that's just the way it goes. So, so you have certain people you know are going to be challenging, and certain people are going to be supportive. And the thing went really well. Everything went, I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better thing. Nobody seemed to have a problem with what I said. Now I might look back and say, geez, I wasn't radical enough if everybody was agreeing with me. But okay, back then it felt good. Everyone was agreeing with me. And then my best friend stood up to speak, and he just ripped it to shreds. And he ripped it not based on the quality of the scholarship, but based on the assumption, and this is, I can't remember if he said this explicitly, but this was the idea. I know this guy. He's my best friend. I know him from the inside, not from the outside, the way you other people know him. And I know that he doesn't believe a word of what he's saying. That is just a scam. He knows what you want uh, to hear. So he said it, and you're all applauding him. But really, he's laughing at you, and the whole thing is it's bogus. And he doesn't, you know, it's totally without any, um, any authenticity to it. I was crushed. Hey, it wasn't true. I mean, I'm very careful to say what I think. Um, so it, so he was wrong. And it wasn't that he, misunder, that he misread me, that I can live with, but that he did it in public in such a way as to, uh, it seemed to me at the time, to destroy me. And even, even now, and we're talking 30-something years later, I think still that was the intent. I think there was an attempt to destroy me. Um, now, at the time, I was just furious. I mean, first I was scared, because, uh-oh, now are they going to believe him? Are they going to believe me? They believed me. It was worked out fine. That What he said had no impact whatsoever. But So then I just got furious with him. It took me a while of continually you know, thinking. I mean, I still, obviously, I'm still talking about it. But, so I looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. And eventually I realized, as we've been talking, he had no choice. Whatever was going on in his mind, he had to do something to knock me down. Because somehow his survival depended on it. 
And I, I don't know the details. I've never talked to him about it. I don't think he even remembers the incident because we talk all the time. Um, but I realized at some point that he had no choice. He was defending himself for whatever reason he felt he had to do that and, and using me as uh, attacking me as a way of defending himself. When I realized that, I forgave him instantaneously. I, I just, there was nothing else to do. I just felt compassion for him and I had no resentment or anger or, or grudge. Now, that's through the end of it. But then the meaning piece comes in. When I, if, if, if whether or not what I'm saying is true, it's what I think. So I'm looking at, at my understanding of what happened to him. I'm looking at how I responded to it. And out of those elements, I can make meaning in the sense that I now understand, rightly or wrongly, but I now understand that we are all trapped. You know, that's the meaning I'm, I'm making out of this. I can understand that even my closest friend can be so trapped as to do something that I thought at the time was so painful um, and, and, not, and, and, that, and, and that meaning that I derive from that experience, I then apply to everything else. Um, that's, not, you know, that's not the one bit of evidence I use to say that we're trapped. But the meaning that I make from, that I glean from that experience is uh, one that I can apply to other experiences. We make meaning not, not simply by telling the story over and over and over again but by understanding it so deeply that we discover principles in it that we can apply to other aspects of our lives, and that's what gives our lives, in this little thing we're talking about, that's what gives our lives uh, meaning. Does that, does that make sense? It does. It's helpful. I have one final question for you, Rabbi Rami, which is if you could share with our listeners a little bit about the 21-Day Forgiveness Challenge what it is, what you'll be offering during these 21 days. Okay. I am very excited about the 21-Day Forgiveness Challenge. Um, but I want to be very clear about what the challenge is first. Um, the challenge is not at the end of 21 days to have forgiven everybody that you need to forgive. That's not the challenge. If that, if that's it's just... If the promise I seem to be making is, is that in three weeks you can be, you know, the, the Gandhi of forgiveness, that's, that's not it. The challenge is to get through all 21 days. And even that, I'm, I'm being a little lenient on, so that if you, because there's exercises for each day. And if you fall behind and you're taking two or three days for one exercise, it's still on the website, you know, sounds true, and you can still pick it up, and it may take you a little bit longer than 21 days. So the challenge is to finish it. And what it is, is a careful, deep exploration of the notion of forgiveness on different levels. You know, using, you know doing, doing, working with the body, working with emotions, working with our, our thoughts about things, working with the spacious mind element that we've been talking about. Uh, everything that, that we've been these ideas we've been knocking around for the last hour or so, all of them play out in the course of the 21 days. And what I'm hoping for is that you will get, you will create for yourself, using the elements that we're providing, you'll create for yourself a forgiveness practice. 
focus not on overcoming specific feelings, but on continually shifting to that spacious place, um, physically where you're not so tight, you know, emotionally where you're not spinning the same feelings over and over and over again, mentally where you're not telling the same drama over and over again, shifting into that spacious mind where you can see what is, accept what is, and then move beyond what is with, with a deep sense of compassion. And that's probably what, what we're calling forgiveness here, that, that um, recognizing that we're all bozos on this bus and that um, that alone allows us some, some freedom for ourselves and, and for those that, that we care about. So this is a very, I, I think it's a very demanding 21 days. I mean, you'll, you'll get a reminder every day to go to the website, look up the material, read what needs to be read, work on the exercises. There's all these exercises that, that I'm offering. Uh, simple things that can actually be done. Uh, doing all these things that we're asking you to do and allowing them to work on you as you appear to be working on them. That you're really planting seeds each day of the 21 days that will begin to flower, blossom, in, in a way that will shift you into spacious mind over and over and over and over again and allow forgiveness and compassion to just arise of their own accord. I mean, that's fairly general, but maybe it gives people a sense of what we have in mind. I'm going to do it with you, Rabbi Rami, and with Sounds True listeners. Listening to this conversation, it's clear to me that I have a couple personal forgiveness challenges that could use this 21 days of deep engagement. So I'm in. <laughs> Good. Why don't we do it right along with everybody else also? Because it's not, I, I, I'm hoping that this is not a one-time thing, that once you learn how to do this or learn the exercises, that you'll continue to do them, uh, you know, the next 21 days and the next 21 days after that. I've been speaking with Rabbi Rami Shapiro. With Sounds True, he's created a new forgiveness challenge, 21 Days of Radical Acceptance. It's an online, intensive, three-week engagement in the liberating experience of compassion and forgiveness. And you're all welcome to join us. Along with the Forgiveness Challenge, you'll receive an ebook of Rabbi Rami's Guide to Forgiveness. Very provocative and challenging reading. Really turns things upside down. Rabbi Rami, I always like talking to you. You make me think in, in different ways. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tammy. The feeling is mutual. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.